little thought experiment for you. What's the worst thing someone could call you? I'm not talking about a swear word. Those are everywhere in our increasingly coarse culture. I mean, what's the worst thing that someone could say about you? Some men would say, oh, I, I would hate to be called a... Some men and women would say, I'd hate to be called a coward. I'd hate to be called lazy. Although some people kind of revel in laziness. Have you noticed? They kind of enjoy it. They kind of make a big deal about it. Post pictures of themselves being lazy. It's an interesting thing, and it varies by the person, and it varies by the culture. I grew up in northern Mexico, in Chihuahua, way up north, just four hours south of El Paso. That's why I was driving into the wasteland. And if you want to get a picture of Chihuahua, think of small-town Texas, and that's the general idea. Those are Mexican cowboys. And like Texas, they have a rivalry with the big city. In Mexico, the biggest city, of course, is Mexico City. And my dearest and best friends in Mexico ultimately came from Mexico City. But having grown up in the north, I understood the rivalry. It's the kind of thing that makes a southern man call another man a Yankee. There's nothing wrong with that word. It's all in the tone that you say it. As it's pronounced by Texans, it usually means anything but a compliment. So the New York Yankees are proud of their name and their pinstripes, but if you're from Birmingham, Alabama, maybe not so much, depending on the tone in which you spit out the word. So I'm in northern Mexico, and two Mexican cowboys had a little accident. One rear-ended the other. One pickup hit the other. And like a lot of men, I'm interested in crashes, so I heard the crash outside the ATM, ran out like a dog, right, looking for, uh, looking for the source of excitement. And these two guys and their big hats and their boots have jumped out of their old pickups and they begin to call each other everything. Every family member is mentioned, character, intelligence, driving skill. I mean, it's all on the table and it's ugly. And I'm starting to think, you know, these are the kind of dudes that carry guns in these trucks. Maybe I should duck back into the ATM area. And here's when it really got heated. One of them said, this is all in Spanish and so much better in Spanish, I wish I could do it for you. He said, you know what, man, you're, you're from Mexico City. And the other guy kind of staggered back, like, you can talk about my mama, but don't say anything like that, right? And he was so offended, it took him, it may, turned him into kind of an eight-year-old, and he said, no, I'm not. Can you guess what's coming? You are. So here's two guys, probably late 30s in cowboy boots, screaming, and the worst possible insult they could reach for was that they were from another part of that wonderful country. So I thought a lot about that, and I thought, what's the worst thing that anyone could say to me about myself? And here's what I think it is. If I were ever called and known to be, and actually was, a hypocrite, that would hurt. If someone said to me, you know, your trouble, Bruce, you preach all right, but the trouble is you don't act in line with what you say. Your words, your sermons are so much better than your actual behavior. Whew, that would sit me down. In today's passage in Luke, Jesus went off. 
There's really no other way to say it. Look with me in Luke. You'll see what I mean. Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. We'll begin at the point of the explosion. Jesus is at dinner with a Pharisee. There are also what the Bible calls lawyers present. In other words, this is a group of men who are meticulously observant of the law and the traditions that they have stacked up on top of it. There are also professional religious experts in the Word of God who are present. They're all sitting around Jesus as they're eating together. And something was said that made Jesus explode, and he gave a long denunciation. He spoke like the prophets of long ago, and he pronounced woes over them. It sounds strange to an English ear, but in his culture and in his day, he is speaking a word not of a curse, but of lament, because they are so very far from God, and it has everything to do with hypocrisy. These, Jesus says, are the marks of a spiritual hypocrite. Verse 42, but woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. What's he telling them here? The first mark of a spiritual hypocrite, the hallmark of being a spiritual hypocrite is this. A hypocrite is fussy about the details, but he's indifferent to people and unloving towards God. Jesus is talking about their tithing. He says, you tithe everything in the kitchen. You tithe mint and rue and every herb. In other words, they are so meticulous about their giving that they examine everything they own and everything they earn, and they carefully parcel out God's percentage. And he says, you do all these things, you tithe everything, mint and rue and every herb, and you neglect justice and the love of God. That's the trouble. As you're ceremonially observant, as you're religiously observant of every little detail, you don't care whether people get justice and you actually have no love for God. Verse 42, these you ought to have done. In other words, you should have been tithing. Of course you're a generous giver. Of course you're careful to return to God from everything that He gave you. You should have done the tithing without neglecting the others. And this is the sort of thing that I experienced when I was in Bible college. My education began in a very, very legalistic environment. It got better. But I was initially educated in a religious environment where men would do things like chide me about the color of my pants or whether I was wearing a necktie or whether the pattern of the necktie was too loud. And some of those men were eventually exposed as cloaking all of that concern for proper appearances with a wicked life of their own. They were concerned about me dressing properly while they hid terrible lives of sin. Verse 43, Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. What's this about? A religious hypocrite loves how people admire him because of his good behavior. 
You love to have the best seats when it comes to hearing God's Word. You love people greeting you and publicly hailing you as someone who is close to God. Now, this gets a little tricky because we're doing a great deal in love for God this morning in public. I've prayed in public. You've been singing in public. Later, some of you, those of you who don't give online, you'll give publicly. You'll reach into You'll reach into your Bible, pull out a little envelope. Is that okay? Am I making a mistake by preaching publicly, by praying in front of you? Shouldn't it, wouldn't it be better just to be quiet? Well, Jesus says the trouble with public praying and public giving only happens if you do those things publicly, watch this, in order to be seen by other people. In other words, it all goes to motivation. If you're doing anything in service to people or love for God in order that other people will see you and say, now that's a solid Christian. See that? That's the kind of person you should be. If that's your motivation, you're a hypocrite. You should do all those things, but only in genuine concern for people and genuine love for God. Verse 44. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. Now, what's that about? Have you heard Jesus in another denunciation of this same group of people refer to whitewashed tombs or whitewashed graves? Here's why they did that. Many cultures still do. They would paint the graves white. It makes an ugly necessity of life a little bit better looking, but it had a ceremonial purpose as well. You see, God in His law had had given both moral law and ceremonial law. The moral law are things like this, the Ten Commandments, which tell you, you shall not lie. It's not only don't, it's shall. In other words, this is the way you are to live. You are never ever to have anything to do with any kind of false witness, with any kind of lying. But let me ask you, on that standard, how you doing? You ever lie? You ever tell anybody I didn't get the email? I haven't had time to get to it? Well, you went to a movie last night. You did have time to get to it. You just genuinely didn't want to. So whether it's the moral law or the ceremonial law, which regulated everything and down to the way they dressed and the food that they ate, what God wanted to create was a culture set apart for Him that reminded people every single day, whether they were talking to their neighbors or simply getting dressed, that He was holy, that He was high and above, that He was completely separate from them, that if they were ever to approach Him, they had to approach Him on His terms, not theirs. And most of all, all the law was to make them call out to God for mercy. Because if I truly understood and believed that God's standard is this, Bruce, if you ever tell a single lie, you're separated from me. My only hope is to say, please have mercy on me. I've sinned. I've lied. Please forgive me. Not take on the burden of never, ever lying because I'm dead already. So what they did in Jesus' day was mark the tombs white. Because the ceremonial law of Moses said when you walk and 
through your daily life, if you have any contact with the dead, that's not a moral failure, but it is a ceremonial offense, so you have to be separated for a time of cleansing before you can rejoin people in worship. It was just one of the many things that reminded them how high God's standard actually is. And Jesus says to the Pharisees, verse 44, you're like unmarked graves, and people walk over those unmarked graves without knowing it. What's he mean? People who are hypocritical contaminate people spiritually without them even knowing it. Many of the students I went to that legalistic Bible college with never got over it. They don't have any room for God in their lives because they were treated so harshly with so much human condemnation. They were subjected to so many merely man-made religious traditions that they quietly made a decision. I don't think they ever enunciated it, but it sounded and it led to this kind of behavior. If this is what God is like, I want nothing to do with Him. That's what hypocrisy does. Parents, that's why it's so important that you not be a hypocrite to your children. Because if you insist on one standard and live another for your own, you tell them that life is not only impossible, it's painful and difficult, and they will fail, and their most likely reaction is to reject all of it altogether. If I could be honest with you as a dad, I've raised two sons, nearly done with that season, they're young men now. But the things that I've been harshest with them about have almost without fail always been flaws that I see in them that are really in me. And because I know how much that's going to cost them, I come down like an expert and thunder against them and tell them, don't you ever. What I should do is not be a hypocrite and insist on something I cannot do myself. The humble man sits beside the child and says, what you're doing is going to cost you, and I know because it's cost me. Here, look at the scars of what that kind of behavior has put on me. Unmarked graves, like spiritual carbon dioxide that's waking making its way through the atmosphere, quietly killing them. The next verse, verse 45, one of the lawyers answered him, teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. This is one of the professionals, remember? This is one of the guys who sets the standard. The Pharisees are lay people. They're just normal men who have affiliated themselves with this very strict observance of the law. They've come up with literally hundreds of traditions and rules that they themselves made up, that they want to impose on everybody, and it's the lawyers who are making those judgments. So the poor Pharisee is sitting, apparently, in his own home hearing all this, and one of the professionals speaks up. Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. Now, was your house like mine? Did your mother ever say to you, be quiet or I'll give you something to cry about? That's what happens next. Look at verse 46. And he said, woe to you lawyers also. Oh, you want some of this? There's plenty for you. You're no different. I was talking to them, but since you brought yourself up, let me talk to you for a moment now. Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. 
A hypocrite sets a high standard for others but doesn't move a finger to reach it or help anyone else do it either. That's what a hypocrite does. He sets a high standard. He puts a heavy burden on someone else's back and has no intention of moving it himself or helping that other person. Verse 47, this is very, very hard and long. Look, woe to you for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. What's this about? God had sent these people and Israel prophets in years earlier. Years and years they'd been hearing from people, not self-appointed people, but actually people sent from God who opened their word to them, who spoke to them. And prophets are hard to hear because the point of the prophet is always not to tell you that you're doing a good job, but that you've drifted far from God. It's like the alert in a major airliner that's telling you, pull up, pull up, pull up, pull up. Disaster is on his way. Death is imminent if you don't take corrective action now. That's the work of the prophet. And what their ancestors had done is kill the prophets. What are these men doing? Building them tombs, visiting them, decorating them. In other words, they're honoring those who were killed, but look what Jesus says to them, verse 48. You are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. Boy, this is hard. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary, yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. What does a hypocrite do? Number five, he laments the sins of the past, but he goes on committing them in the present. The hypocrite says, had I been alive back then, I would have done better. My fathers were wrong. I will honor the men that they killed because I am so different from them. But they know that Jesus knows that their heart is no different from the graves, of the, from the hearts of their fathers because they are lamenting the past while continuing to do the same kind of God rejection. And the worst thing he says to the scribes, is in verse 52. Woe to you, lawyers. Remember, these are the scholars, the preachers, the teachers, the authoritative people who can tell people what God's book means. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. The worst part of a hypocrite, Jesus serves saves the worst condemnation for last, is this. He doesn't actually know God, and he keeps others from knowing him too. The lawyer would have been better to keep his mouth shut because he knew the Scriptures. In fact, he likely, we don't know who this man is, but if he was like his contemporaries, he knew most, if not all, of what God had written by heart. And what Jesus is saying is, you hold the key to the Scriptures. In other words, your knowledge of what God put in writing allows you to open it up and open wide the door that leads people to God. But you didn't do that. 
You took the key away. You didn't walk over to God in humility, and you won't let anyone else get to God either because you have left the word locked. This was the fatal flaw that people made in Jesus' day and the flaw that they're still making. Jesus exposed it in the Gospel of John. I want you to read this with me, John 5, verse 39. Jesus is speaking to the same kind of people, and He is telling them about the disconnect between reading and studying this book and still having a, a heart that is very far from God. Read this with me. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Let's stop right there. Anything wrong so far? Is it good to search the Scriptures? It is. God's own Word. Paul will later write in Timothy that the Scriptures are breathed out by God. In other words, they are so close that they are not man's personal musings. It's as if God spoke to you face to face, close enough for you to feel His breath and told you exactly who He is and what He wants, how you can be at peace with Him. Not by doing better, not by trying harder, but by trusting Him, by humbly coming to Him. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Here's the problem. And it is they that bear witness about me. Every part of the Hebrew Scriptures points forward to Jesus in astonishing detail. The time of His birth, the place of His birth, the nature of His life, everything is spelled out in things that these men knew well. And they searched the Scriptures thinking that in what God had told them they would find eternal life. Here's the problem. The Scriptures bear witness about me, Jesus says, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. What is their failure? You tell me. They refuse to come to Jesus. You see, this book, which is printed in English always and properly as Holy Bible, which is God's actual Word, which can be verified by history and by experience because it reliably tells us about reality, it reliably tells us about history, it explains human nature and human character in a way that nothing else ever has, and the best social science research only validates what the Bible has always said about us. You can read it and recognize it. You're, you recognize yourself in its pages if you're paying attention with an open, humble heart. It will sting you and make you sit up straight and sometimes drive you to your knees. It can do all of that, but it will do you no good unless it makes you come to Jesus. And there are many, many people like that who know the Scriptures and can quote the Bible but will not humble themselves before Jesus. They retain their pride, and in retaining their pride, they keep their hypocrisy, and they will not come to Him so that they can have life. So, what does Jesus want us to do about all this? I just read you the explosion. Let me read to you now in closing what set Him off. Go back in verse 37. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so we, he went in and reclined at a table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. Now, what's that about? Well, the 
Pharisees, with the help of the scribes, had written all of these traditions, not found anywhere in God's Word, not found anywhere in Scripture, saying how every utensil, every piece of furniture, and every bit of a person's hands had to be ceremonially, publicly, and visibly washed in a very specific way because that would portray holiness and devotion to God. It wasn't part of God's Word. Jesus knew it, so He came in certainly, I'm sure, with clean hands, and he just started eating. And the Pharisee, we're told in verse 38, is astonished. And the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. How's that for a dinner guest? You know, you didn't do all the splashing and the washing. I'm astonished. I'm offended thought you were a good man. And Jesus says, here's the trouble with you. You're really, really careful with the bowl, and the bowls are ceremonially washed according to your own religious traditions, and inside I can see your heart. You're filled with, did you see the diagnosis? Greed and wickedness. Ouch. Verse 40, you fools. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? In other words, doesn't the God who made your external life, doesn't he care about the inside of you too? And here's what he wants us to do. And it's a tricky reading. But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. That's a hard reading. Let me show it to you in two different translations. Let's start with the bottom one, which is what I just read to you. This is going to get geeky for about one minute, but stay with me. It's going to, ma- it's going to matter in just a second. What we're reading was written in Greek long ago and far away. And sometimes 2,000 years later, the literal word-by-word Greek does not make it immediately clear, even to the best scholars, exactly what the first readers would have understood. We always teach and preach from a very literal translation to just put that when there are, and they are rare, but when there are difficult passages like this, the literal translation just says, here as close as we can put it in English, is what the Greek actually says, you figure it out. And this is what it says, give as alms those things that are within, whatever that means, and behold, Everything is clean for you. In other words, when you give as alms the things that are inside, then everything's going to be clean. Well, translations like the NIV and the NLT, the New Living Translation, they lean much more toward the reader and the scholars who are, without exception, brilliant men and women. Sometimes they fill in their best understanding of what it probably means, but they can't be sure, which is why there are all these different translations. Again, this is very rare, but it's super important, I believe, for you to understand what verse 41 means, because this is the time that Jesus is saying, here's how you clean out the hypocrisy. You're filled with greed and wickedness. You're destroying your children, you're agreeing with the sins of your ancestors, you're ruining the lives of people around you, you're actually keeping them away from God. Here's what you are supposed to do to reverse all that and to cleanse it. I believe what Jesus is telling them is not, 
Just give what is inside the dish to the poor. Do you notice how the dish has little brackets around it? See that? I'm waiting for an affirmative response at this point. Can everybody see that? The reason for that, it's in brackets because it doesn't say the dish in Greek. The translators have just filled that in because they think that's what Jesus means. I don't believe that's what he means in context because these people were more than willing to do the external thing because it hid the internal problem. What is Jesus saying? Give as alms, in other words, give as sacrificial offerings the things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. In other words, I think Jesus is saying this, pay attention to your interior life, not just your external behavior, because the inside matters more than the outside. He's not inviting them, I think, to more external behavior. He is telling them this, if you have God deal with your heart, then everything in you is going to be clean. Have God deal with your heart and your whole life will be clean. Why didn't they take him up on it? Because it's easier to be a hypocrite than it is to be humble. See, the attraction of hypocrisy is I can fool you. I only have to be good and do the right thing as long as you are watching. And a lot of people live their lives that way. I referred jokingly earlier to the South. It's not the case on the West Coast. Our culture is very different. But what we're interested here at Crosspoint, we're interested in genuine Jesus following, Christ imitating, becoming more like Jesus ourselves, Christianity, not what we could call churchianity. Because what plagues the southern part of the United States and the so-called Bible Belt is, of course, people have a church. Just like they have a school and a doctor, it's just part of a respectable, decent life. And they know what church to go to, what to dress, what songs to sing, who to have lunch with afterward, and there's nothing changing on the inside. This is Jesus' complaint. He says, if you deal with the inside, the outside will be quite clean as well. It's like you, when you're doing your dishes at home, if you really want to take care of your family and make sure that the dishes they're going to eat from are very, very clean, you scrub hard, you pour the soap on the inside of the bowl, you rinse it and wash it and scrub it again and again, and you know what happens in the process? The bottom of the bowl, perfectly clean, but it doesn't matter nearly as much. Here's Jesus' offer in the Gospel of John. He's not talking to you about a clean but empty life. He's telling the Pharisees, if you will deal with me, if you will come to me, if you will humble yourself before God, something wonderful is going to happen. Read this with me, John 7, verse 38. Here's Jesus' offer to you even today. Jesus said, whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This isn't a clean, sterile, empty life. Jesus says, you come to me, you believe in me. In other words, you give up trusting yourself. You throw yourself on my mercy. 
You tell God, I can't possibly meet the standard. Your law is too heavy. I cannot meet it. I cannot reach that high. I am leaning instead on you with all of my weight. I'm turning myself over to you. Please give me your mercy. Jesus says, when you trust me that way, out of your heart, out of the interior of your life will flow rivers of living water. And this is what America desperately needs in 2018. In the condition that our country is in, never has the Lord wanted and desired more. I am quite sure in our history, Christians that act and think and treat people as Jesus would in His place, in their place, whatever that might mean. You need to be the kind of Christian who, because Jesus has cleansed you from the inside out, out of you comes, what a picture, rivers of living water where other people are refreshed and other people can live because they're in touch with you and you're in touch with Jesus. Well, how did they take it? The last two verses tell me. Look in verse 53. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him, to catch him in something he might say. And if you keep reading Luke's gospel, you know what you're told? You know what the religious machinery is going to do to Jesus next? They're going to kill him. The reason for that is simple. Hypocrisy is easy. Humility is hard. Humility takes a heartfelt conviction that I cannot save myself. I cannot live one day apart from the grace of Jesus. That's why every Christian, and perhaps especially so-called public Christians like myself who put a mic around their head and open up the Bible and read it and explain it to other people, that's why this weed of hypocrisy is so dangerous and always coming up. Because we stand at the crossroads, and this is why legalism flourishes every single time that Jesus gives you a commandment, he makes you stand at a crossroads and choose, are you going to hear this and it's impossibility and come to me and be humble or are you going to be a hypocrite? In other words, are you going to choose hypocrisy or humility? And my great fear for myself and for you is that having so much of the Scripture where you, we actually have the privilege of a variety of translations and things that are so accessible online, you could have figured out what I just explained to you for yourself if you wanted to take half an hour and you knew where to look. Everything that God has told us is spelled out in clear English, and the human heart says, I got this. I get it, and I got it. I get it, and I can do it, and no, you can't. No, I can't. I can't make it a day without Jesus. That's why that evangelist question was so poisonous. If you died right now living the way you're living, are you sure you'd go to heaven? No, if I died living the way I'm living at any given moment, I'm condemned. God can't forgive me because of my behavior. That's why He sent His Son to behave beautifully and perfectly in my place so that throwing myself humbly on His mercy, He would welcome me as His child and He would call Himself my big brother, my Savior. And He'll do the same for you and He won't reform you. He'll give you a new birth. He'll give you a new life, so much so that water will flow out of you to feed and nourish other people, but 
only if you will be humble. Let's pray. Can I give you a moment to talk to the Lord about it? Many people, including the men that Jesus originally spoke to and many people today hearing His Word all these years later, will hear the sting of His diagnosis and get tougher. They won't want to hear it. If you've never truly humbled yourself before Christ and said to Jesus, Jesus, I cannot save myself. I am so sorry for my sin please save me. I invite you to do that right now. He's listening. That passage in Romans says he lives even now to intercede for the people he loves. And if you have been following him in the weeds of hypocrisy of been growing up, and you've lost sight of the mercy of Jesus, you've been self-satisfied with your own growth, your own development, your own knowledge, could I invite you back away from hypocrisy and back to humility so that you would be as amazed the day He saved you that He loves you still? That's the marker for me. Do I love Him and I trust Him now all these years later as the first day I realized what He had done for me dying on that cross? If you haven't trusted Him as your Savior, call out to Him right now. Whatever decision you make, if you need help, if you've turned to Christ, if you want to keep growing, let us know on the card. As you give your offering, don't forget the card. Whatever prayer request you have, whatever decision you made, we want as your family to humbly, as needy people ourselves, help you and encourage you to keep walking in the humility of Christ. Lord, this offering, this worship, this song is for you. If there's a single person here, man or woman, young or old, who doesn't know you, I pray that they would turn right now in humble repentance and say, Jesus, I can't save myself. I'm guilty. I'm condemned. My own heart accuses me. My conscience troubles me. Please forgive me. Cleanse me. Give me that living water. In Jesus' name.